So anyway, last week, uh, last week we began talking about uh, different inyanim of being fruitful and being multiplied. And we spoke about one of the low-tech ways of, of having a child, and that is adoption. And I think we covered the different issues of adoption, the different ways you have to convert a child, and what a child can renounce his conversion if he, become, when he, be, he or she becomes Barabbas Mitzvah. And I think the last thing we talked about were the different halachas that can sometimes be very hard about yichud and negia. Again, yichud is a man being alone with a woman, which is normally going to be usher, and negia is like hugging, kissing, hand-holding, and the like. Now we know, just to remind you of the last subject, that between mother and son and father and daughter, there is no prohibition of yichud or chibuk v'nishuk, Chibuk means hugging and kissing. And uh, that includes uh, not just father, but grandfather, great-grandfather, and not just mother, but grandmother, great-grandmother. So that's not a problem, right? Uh, A father or a grandfather can always hug his daughter no matter what her age, and even if she's married already. It makes no difference. Totally permitted. And the reason is because in a normal, healthy person, there is no sexual attraction. And since there's no sexual attraction, so the laws against uh, hugging and kissing don't apply. Yeah? Isn't it because, like, any time two people are forbidden to have relations, then yichud and media don't apply there? Well, that that can't be the case. I'll I'll tell you why. Let's let's consider a married woman. Uh, I I certainly cannot have yichud with a married woman, even though she's forbidden to me, right? So it has to be forbidden because of, of incest. Yeah, that's the difference. Incest uh, or like two men can be all together because relations between two men is forbidden. Well, I, I, I would say this. Uh, the reason why two men are permitted to be together is because uh, if they're normally, het- if, if they're heterosexual, there is no sexual attraction. Now, it's not so simple if two gay men are allowed to be together. Some say two gay men are not allowed to be together because they're attracted to each other, see? So that's really the rule. The rule is that in incest, there is normally no sexual attraction. Uh, so the Shiloh was this. The Shiloh was when uh, you adopt, let's say a married couple adopts a child. Uh, so the question is, I'm just reviewing a little bit, uh, whether there'll be an Isser of Yichud or Nagia between the mother and the adopted son or between the father and the adopted daughter. So most opinions, and this includes the Rebbe himself, takes the position that the rule of father to daughter and mother to son is only biological, only when it's biological, because it would be incest. But in the case of adoption, uh, since they are not related, actually, so all of these halachas would apply. Now, that doesn't mean a baby. Remember the age. The age generally is the Isra of Yichud, and chibuk v'nishuk kick in when a boy is nine and when a girl is around seven. So a boy below nine or a girl below seven, you don't have any of these problems. But once they hit seven, nine, you're going to have that issue. By the way, some people are machmir by a girl uh, three. That's, I don't know, you may have heard three, but no, it, uh, that, that's uh, very, very strict. You don't, you don't have to follow that view. Uh, and this, remember, you, you understand that this is a big problem for a babysitter. This is actually a very, very big problem for a babysitter. Uh, if you are, let's say, uh, you're already 14 or 15, 
okay, you're 20, whatever you are, and you're asked to babysit uh, a boy that is more than, that is nine years old or more, you have a problem of yichud with that boy. You see, one has to be aware of it. Other people are home. Oh, if other people are home, that's fine. But I'm talking about if you're a babysitter, I don't mean you're a mother's aide. I mean, you're a babysitter, meaning the parents went away. Now, if there are more than one boy, if there are two boys, so the halacha is, yichud is generally going to be permitted between a woman and two men. They act as chaperones for each other. Uh, but if it's only, uh, and, and, the, and the sister can also be a chaperone, but if it's just a babysitter and nine-year-old boy, you have a real problem. And the same thing if a boy does babysitting, which is a little less common, uh, and the boy is babysitting a, a girl that's, uh, you know, seven or up, uh, there is a problem of yichud. So one has to be aware of this. So the Rebbe took the position that all the laws of yichud and chibuk v'nishuk, that's negiyah, chibuk is hugging and nishuk is kissing, apply to adopted uh, children once they reach a certain age. And uh, the Rebbe's position is, is, in, is in fact the majority position, meaning it's not just the Rebbe, but most poskim actually say that, but I had mentioned the interesting psak of the Sitz Eliezer, Rabbi Waldenberg, who was a very great posek in Yerushalayim, and he made the argument that the heter of father to daughter or mother to son is not based on biology, but it's based on the fact that you raise, that when a parent raises someone from a very young age, there is naturally no sexual, I mean, there, there are sick people, obviously, but in a normal, healthy person, there will be no sexual uh, desires. Therefore, Ravoldberg ruled, as long as you adopt the child before the prohibited age kicks in, meaning I adopt the girl before she's seven, and I adopt the boy before he's nine, and most adoptions are way earlier than that, he says there is no iser of yichud, and there is no iser of chibuk venishuk, which we call megia, even when they uh, reach the age where it would be. In. Now again, that is a minority opinion, uh, but uh, one should obviously talk to their rabbi or their posek if they have this question. But it is a very, very important issue because uh, if a child is deprived, particularly an adopted child, is deprived of, of physical affection, it, it might, uh, might hurt the child in different, in different ways. In fact, one might even say, it's a pretty strong statement, that if you're going to follow the rule that you can't hug your adopted child, then you have to think twice about whether you should adopt a child, that you're not able to show that requisite affection. Now, adoption does have many, many problems. For example, uh, if a Kohen adopts a child, even if the child's Jewish, uh, he does not become a Kohen. Right? That's, it's obvious, right? Adopting doesn't make a child Jewish without conversion, and adopting doesn't make a child a Kohen. So I'll give you an example where this was actually a painful thing. More painful in Eretz Yisrael than in Chutzlaret. You know, uh, you know the Kohanim, uh, there's something called Birkas Kohanim, right? Kohanim get up in the, at the end of the repetition of the Amidah, and they bless the people. Now, one of the main differences, I don't know if you see this, I don't know if you go to shul every day, but one of the main differences between Eretz Yisrael and Chutzlaretz, this is very, very fascinating, is how often do the Kohanim bless the people? In Chutzlaretz, among Ashkenazim, and this is whether Hasidim or Mishnagim, Birkas Kohanim is only recited on Yom Tov, not on Shabbos even, 
Only on Yom Tov. Right? So this is called duchening in Yiddish. Duchening just means getting up on the platform, whatever. So duchening is only done on Yom Tov. In Yerushalayim, and in most of Eretz Yisrael, duchening is done every single day. Every single day, regular Monday, Sunday, right? We did it, we did it this morning. If there's a Kohen, if there's no Kohen, you know, you don't do it. Uh, well, let me digress a little bit because it might be an interesting little bit of knowledge that maybe you never, never discussed. And that is, gee, the Torah says there's a mitzvah for Kohanim to bless the people. Actually, it's Hashem that's blessing the people through the Kohanim. So, logically, it should be done every day. Like, you know, it's a mitzvah, like davening, like kriyashma. So, huh? Like out of Israel, saying? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. In other words, uh, what we're doing in Israel is normal and logical. So why why did it develop in Chutz La'aretz that you only do it on Yom Tif? It's a little bit of a mystery. And the Ramah writes, right, the Ramah was the main, Rav Moshe Israelis, who lived in the 1500s. He was the main posek for Ashkenazim, Ashkenazic Jewry. The Ramah gives a very funny reason. It's a strange reason. The Ramah says, because in order for a Kohen to give a bracha, the Kohen must have a joyous heart. Only when the Kohen is in Simcha, he's able to give a bracha. Because the Simcha you have is the conduit that brings Hashem's blessing into the world. And in Chutz Aretz, we're never really happy, except on Yom Tif. Even on Shabbos, you know, we're not that happy because life is hard. And Simcha is only on Yom Tov. Uh, we could be Basimcha every day of the year. Uh, this is a very, very strange reason because it is so subjective. I mean, what do you mean a Kohen is not Basimcha? I mean, I could probably identify Kohanim, Chasidish Kohanim, who are always Basimcha in, in America. And I could identify some Kohanim in Israel who are never Basimcha, even on Yom Tov. I mean, it's a very strange thing to condition the halacha on such a subjective assessment of who is Basimcha, who is not Basimcha. Because of this, there were great, great rabbis who wanted to change this rule, and they wanted to start Duchening in America, even during the week. But every time they tried to do it, there was a sign from Shemayim that Hashem didn't want it. Like the show burnt down, there was a fire, something collapsed, as if Hashem is saying, this is a special madrega, a special level that we only keep for the land of Israel. So that is a, a big uh, difference uh, between Eretz Yisrael and Chutz Lars. But even Eretz Yisrael, I don't know if you've traveled around a little bit and noticed this, uh, there are some differences. And that is, in Yerushalayim, we duchen every day that there's a Kohen. But in the Galil, in Svat and Tiberia, they duchen, not every day, but they duchen every Shabbos. Every Shabbos, which is different than Chutz Laaretz. So we have three different types of customs. In Chutz Laaretz, we only duchen on Yom Tif. Uh, in Yerushalayim and in most of Eretz Yisrael, we duchen every day. And in Svat and in Tiberia, we duchen every Shabbos. So there's actually three different customs. Now, can someone remind me, why did I start talking about Birchas Kohenim? I don't even remember. This is a problem that comes up. Oh, yeah, yeah, adoption. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So here's the thing. Uh, there's a family I know. Uh, in fact, the father is a little bit, of, is a Makobo, actually. And he happens to be a Kohen. And they have an adopted son. And they have 
biological children. So the adopted son doesn't want to daven with his father in Shul because what happens is every day his father gets up and duchens with his other sons, but this boy cannot duchen because he's not a Kohen. So he feels stigmatized, he feels embarrassed. So he actually does not daven in the same shul with his father. In Chutzlaris it wouldn't be so bad because during the week he could daven with his father. But in Yerushalayim, where they duchen every day, he would be embarrassed every day. So, uh, you know, these are things that uh, can sometimes be very, very troublesome. By the way, just as another aside, Svardim do duchen every day, even in Chutzlaris. So if you go to a Svardic uh, shul in Chutzlaris, there will be Birkas Kohenim every day. And I'm aware of the fact that some gedolim, when they travel from Israel to Chutz Laaretz and they're Ashkenazim, they will daven in a Sephardic show because they want to hear the Kohanim give a, uh, give a bracha. So the only place that does Amberchus um, Kohanim every day is in Yishayim? No, uh, it's, it's most, most of Israel, most of Israel, meaning uh, most of Israel except for some places north, like the Galil, like uh, to, um it is very, very interesting. It, it's, it's basically because the Jewish Ashkenazic settlements around Yerushalayim were the students of the Vilna Gaon, who actually held Yishiduchen every day, even in Chutz Laaretz, so they followed the Vilna Gaon. The Jewish settlements in, no, in the north are mainly Talmidim of the Baal Shem Tov, who didn't want to change from the Chutz Laaretz Minach. They wanted to keep it, but they made a compromise with the Spartan that if they're not going to do it every day, they'll do it once a week. Uh, because you know that the Baal Shem Tov's Talmidim, in fact, um, this is part of Chabad history too. Uh, the Alter Rebbe, you know, the, the Alter Rebbe was a Talmud of the Magid of Mezerich, right? You had the Baal Shem Tov, and the Baal Shem Tov's successor was Rav Dov Ber of Mezerich, called the Magid of Mezerich. And the Magid, his Talmidim were all, they became the great, great Rebbe's. Rav Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev was a Talmud of the Magid of Mezerich. Uh, the Alter Rebbe was a Talmud, etc. There were all, the Nayim Ali Melech, Rav Melech of Lejansk, like all of the great, famous Hasidic Rebbe's were, were Talmidim, of, or the, the first generation, were the Talmidim of the Magid of, Me, of Mezerich. And originally, when the Magid died, the Alter Rebbe was very young. He was the youngest of the Talmidim. Although Berdichev said he took all the good stuff from the Magid, but whatever, but he was the youngest of the Talmidim. And he was originally not like a Rebbe. He was originally like uh, an assistant to Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk. And Rav Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk went to Eretz Yisrael and took a lot of Hasidim. And that's when the Alter Rebbe became a Rebbe who created Chabad and, 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 and everything else. So uh, the Yishuv in Tiberia were largely Hasidim. The Yishuv of Yushalayim were largely Misnagdim. And that's why Yerushalayim had different minhagim than up, up north, and it reflected itself in, uh, in the Duchenim. Now, today, of course, everything's a mix. You got Misnagdim up north, you got Hasidim in the south, and everybody's mixed up. Uh, <laughs> mixed up. But uh, originally, it was kind of Hasidim were up north, and Misnagdim were uh, around Yerushalayim. So that's, that's how it was, and that, that's responsible for the Duchenim. Okay, so that's kind of uh, about adoption. And again, if there's any questions, I'll be happy to uh, uh, to go over them. Uh, remember, again, the simple idea that adoption does not make a kid Jewish. He has to undergo a, a conversion. 
which he, he or she can renounce when they become an adult. But they do not have to reconvert again. Okay. Uh, now again, uh, does a couple fulfill pru or vu by adoption? Uh, Rav Shlomo Kluger says yes, but most opinions say no. That if it's not your biological child, you do not fulfill pru or vu. Yeah. I can't remember who I was talking about it to, but I was talking about the thing where when they turn bar about mitzvah and they can renounce their conversion. Yeah. And you said that it's like some people say up to a week. And... But yeah. this person's like, no, it has to be like in a minute or something. No, it doesn't have to be in a minute. It, it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of an unclear uh, zman. The zman basically is that uh, if the person has behaved as if they are accepting the Torah, they lose the right to renounce. So that could be. It is possible that if on the day of their bar mitzvah they put on tefillin they've already given up the right to renounce. But that's only if they didn't say they're still thinking about it. Meaning to say, if they put on tefillin and didn't say, I'm still thinking about it, that may stop them right away. But if they say, I'm putting on tefillin, but I'm not sure yet, then they have a few days to, to think about it. They, they have to kind of reserve their rights in that way. But your, but your friend is correct. Uh, if they did mitzvos and they didn't say that they're in doubt, that may take away their right to, to renounce, okay? Alrighty. And remember, too, I mentioned that this is only true if they knew they had the right to renounce. If they didn't find out about that until years later, they could renounce it then. Like they have to know this halach. Okay, so now let's talk about another way to have kids, which is very interesting. Let's talk about uh, sperm donors. Let's imagine that a man is infertile. That means the man either doesn't produce sperm or his sperm is low, it doesn't have enough, uh, or the semen has a low sperm count, whatever it is, that uh, he cannot have a child. So we have people, we have men, who donate sperm. Right? They give sperm to sperm banks, etc. And the question becomes, uh, can, what happens if a woman, or is a woman allowed uh, to get impregnated with what's called donor sperm, right? Donor semen. Uh, and uh, what, what, what effect would that have? So let's make the obvious point. If a woman is impregnated with donor sperm, her husband certainly does not fulfill, be fruitful and multiply because biologically it's not his child. He may adopt the child and that's very common. It's very common if a woman has a child from a sperm donor. Uh, you know, effectively he'll adopt the child, but so what? Uh, it's not his child and he's not going to be Makayim Pru or Vu. Okay, so that's fine. So let's assume he's not Makayim Pru or Vu, but still, is it permitted for her to do this? So here I need to go over a very, very famous, controversial, and bitter machlokas between two great Gedolim, Rav Moshe Feinstein and the Satmar Rebbe. Uh, this goes back to the 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, the Satmar Rebbe, now Satmar Rebbe you, you, you probably have heard of for other reasons. Uh, the Satmar Rebbe was known to be extremely anti-Zionist. He was against the state of Israel, uh, etc. He also had his own disagreements with Chabad, which is a separate issue, but, but he was against the state of Israel, known to be anti-Zionist. Uh, his followers are, are the Mea Sharim uh, Jews who don't, uh, don't accept uh, the state of Israel in any, in any way. Uh, although there's an interesting story about this. Uh, in 1968, 
when Nixon was running to be president, and he won, Nixon won, but the Democratic uh, candidate was Hubert Humphrey. I don't know if you know your history a little bit. Hubert Humphrey was uh, Lyndon Johnson's vice president, and he was running to be president in 1968, and he was trying to get the Jewish vote. So he was told if he goes to Williamsburg in Brooklyn, there's a lot of Jews in Williamsburg, and uh, he could talk to them about his uh, connection to the Jewish community. Now, in Williamsburg, most of the Jews are Satmer Hasidim, right? Crown Heights is Chabad, Williamsburg is Satmer. So uh, Humphrey comes to speak in Williamsburg, and he has a translator because they don't know English, they know Yiddish, and he's speaking to 10,000 Satmer Hasidim, and the Rebbe is there, and Hubert, the Satmer Rebbe is there, and Hubert Humphrey is talking about what a committed Zionist he was. He's saying, I am a friend of the Jewish community, you know, I support the state of Israel uh, ever since 1948, you know, etc., etc., etc. And uh, one of his aides is Jewish, and he notices that the crowd is not so, you know, not so happy with this whole speech. So he realizes that Humphrey is talking about Zionism to the wrong audience. So after the speech, the person goes over to the Satmar Rebbe and he apologizes. You know, Humphrey is a guy, he doesn't understand the, the politics of the Jewish community. Forgive him, he means well. And the Satmar Rebbe said a wonderful thing. The Satmar Rebbe said, listen, this is perfectly fine. He says, I am against the state of Israel and I believe there shouldn't be a state of Israel. But if Israel is being attacked by enemies, I want them to have the weapons to be protected. I want them to disband on their own. But that a single Jew should be hurt. So if Humphrey wants to give the Israeli army weapons to protect itself against Arabs who want to kill them, I'm supportive of it. He says, this is a family fight. This is within our family. We have disagreements. But these Yidden are still our family. It's a beautiful story. Uh, although I've heard from some Satmers, they say it's not true. It's a made-up story. So I, <laughs> I would hope it would be a good story. But I'll tell you, in reality, I don't want to get into, into something controversial because I know what's a Chabad seminary, but in reality, this story is somewhat similar to Chabad's position. If you go back to Chabad in the 1920s, the Rebbe Rashab, uh, when they were first talking about a Jewish state, the Rebbe Rashab was also against the Jewish state. He says, until Mashiach comes, you're not supposed to have a state. You're not supposed to have a state. The, the statehood is when Mashiach comes. Mamish like Satmar. But what happened was, and this is the Rebbe Sashkatha, once you have a state and once you have millions and millions of Jews here, we can't abandon them. We can't forget about them. We have to take care of them. So the Rebbe was in favor of strengthening the security of the state, not because he was a Zionist, but it's because he was a lover of the Jewish people. That's an important I don't know if Chabad always makes that clear. Uh, but uh, the Rebbe, who, who was a great Zionist in the sense of strengthening our, uh, the, the, the state, was not because of a Zionist philosophy. It was because of the millions and millions of Yidden who live here that you have to take care of them. You can't abandon them. So in a sense, it's kind of what the Satmar Rebbe is saying in the story, that oh, I'm against the state of Israel, but I don't want any Jews to be hurt, and we've got to protect protect the Jews. Okay, but going back to the main thing, the Satmar Rebbe said the following about, this is called artificial insemination. In fact, technically it's called AID, which is artificial insemination with donor sperm. Here's what the Satmar Rebbe said. If a Jewish married woman is impregnated with donor sperm, 
she is guilty of committing adultery. That is adultery. One. Number two, a woman who commits adultery voluntarily, without not, not, not rape in other words, is not allowed to stay married to her husband. Her husband must divorce her. Number three, a child born from adultery, which includes sperm impregnation, is a mamzer who is not allowed to marry other Jews other than a mamzeret or a uh, giorit. We talked about mamzer, right? I think we did. Mm-hmm. Again, remember, again, let me remind you, a child born out of wedlock is not a mamzer. Okay, remember that, 100%. But a child born out of adultery is a mamzer. And the Satmi Rebbe equates sperm donation, insemination, to mamzerit, to adultery. Now that's pretty tough stuff. Obviously, like the Satmi Rebbe, there's no way a woman could be impregnated with donor sperm. She would have to leave her husband and the kid would be a mamzer. Right? This is the Satmi Rebbe's position. Rev Moshe Feinstein disagreed with the Satmar Rebbe on everything. Rav Moshe Feinstein said, a woman is not guilty of adultery unless there is sexual intercourse and injecting sperm into her body is not sexual intercourse. That's number one. Number two, the child that is born from that insemination is not a mamzer because a mamzer too has to be generated from prohibited adulterous sexual intercourse. Now Rav Moshe concedes that the husband is not Makayim Pru or Vu, that much is true, but he says, no adultery, no mamzer. But he comes up with another reason why he says it's not a good thing to do. Nevertheless, Rabbi Feinstein discouraged a use of sperm donors because of a problem that he identified as potential future incest between half-siblings. Do you get that? The the problem is this. Sperm donors tend to do this over and over again because, you know, there's no... Sperm donation, I mean, halakhically it's prohibited, but sperm donation is a lot easier than egg donation. When a woman donates eggs, she's under surgery and they cut into her body. Sperm donation does not require any of that difficulty. So, you know, you get paid for it. So people who don't care about halacha, goyim or whatever, uh, sperm donation is, is a common thing. A lot of medical students do it to get extra money. So here's the problem. Let's imagine woman number one gets impregnated from donor A and has a son. And woman number two gets impregnated from donor A and has a daughter. Now that son and that daughter have different mothers but they do have a common father, the sperm donor. So they are half-siblings. But they don't know it because they don't know who their father is. Anonymous sperm donor. Is there no way to find out? Usually not. Usually not. So what's going to happen is, what if 20 years later, a boy marries a girl, and it turns out, and maybe we'll never find out, but it turns out that a half-brother is marrying his half-sister. Now, you may say to me, that's ridiculous, that's preposterous, that never happened. Number one, it has happened. It's already happened more than once. How do we know? Huh? Within Judaism? Huh? Say again? Within Judaism, it 
uh, even within Judaism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they felt, well, well, I'll give you one case. I'll give you one particular case where, where it was found out, and the guy's in jail now. Uh, there was a doctor in Northern Virginia who happened to be a Jewish doctor. He was a fertility doctor. And he had a real, real high success rate with all of his patients. You know, uh, most infertility specialists have a success rate of around 30 to 40 percent. Meaning most people, they can't help, but you know, 30, 40 is, is good for in vitro and other things like that. This guy had a success rate of 80 percent. So he was attracting so many patients because he really, really was good. 80 percent. It was discovered what he was doing is he was simply throwing away the sperm of all the men that gave sperm. In other words, for their wives, for their wives. And he was substituting his own sperm. And because he was a very fertile individual, uh, he managed to impregnate by in vitro, not, not right. in their body, right. impregnate like hundreds of kids. Hundreds of kids. Uh, and that's why his rate was so high, because he wasn't working with infertile husbands. He was working with himself. He was using his, his sperm. Now, how, how they found out, I'm not sure. Maybe they did DNA testing, I'm not sure. But they found out that he was the father of like 100, 100 children. And I think people pointed out, if this would not have been uncovered, statistically, it would be almost certain that there would be some marriages between them. Because they, they came out with a statistic. Now, this may not be true for Jews, for Orthodox Jews. They say that overwhelmingly, people tend to marry other people who live within five miles. Of, of their home. You, you, you marry, right. the, the boy marries the girl next door, the girl marries the boy next door. Maybe in the from world it's less so because, you know, uh, you go to Eretz Israel, you go to different places. Uh, but they say that all of these hundred people were within like 10 mile radius. Yeah, they, would have, they, would meet, they, they would meet each other and the like. So there have been some cases. In fact, uh, even today, uh, uh, you know, kosher fertility programs like Maimonides Hospital in Borough Park. You know, there are hospitals that try to do in vitro procedures according to halacha and everything. We'll talk about the halachas. One of the things they have is a mashkiach. And the mashkiach makes sure that the, the sperm that is taken from the husband, not a donor, will be the thing that's used and there's not going to be a, a switch. Just like you have a mashkiach in a restaurant to be sure that tray food is not brought in. So they have a mashkiach over the sperm to be sure that there's no switcheroos. Or, because of that case? Well, because of cases like that. I don't know, that, not, not, that, I don't know about that particular case. But uh, you'll notice that when, if you live in Brooklyn and uh, you see advertisements for, for uh, religious fertility pro, uh, operations in hospitals, one of the things they will say is we have constant hashkacha or, or whatever it is to be sure there are no mix-ups or, or switches. Or, or, or the like. So Rav Moshe's time is like this. Rav Moshe's fear was he disagreed with the Satmar Rebbe. The Satmar Rebbe said the woman is guilty of adultery and the kid is a mamzer. Rav Moshe says no, the woman is not guilty of adultery and the kid is not a mamzer. But Rav Moshe said he was not in favor of it because of the hidden potential of a brother, of a half-brother marrying a sister 20 years in the future. Okay, you understand the problem of the half sibling, the unknown half sibling. Yeah. By the way, I've, I've seen, I've heard of cases. I haven't been personally involved, where people commented uh, about how husband and wife seem to look the same. They have the same fit features. Like people say, you know, you could almost be brother and sister. 
aunts, they discovered after they were married that they are brother and sister. (laughs) Again, these things sound like they would never happen, but they have happened. They have happened. And And Ramosha's point is that. Well, well, they would have have to get divorced. Yeah, I mean, it's very. uh, Yeah. Yeah. If it's accidental? Accidental. Yes, according to Stop yeah, it's a very excellent point. And by the way, the, the notion of accidental is an interesting issue. Obviously, when we're talking about artificial insemination, we're talking about an intentional procedure. Uh, but the Talmud itself acknowledges the possibility of accidental insemination. And this actually goes by the ca- ca- category of a woman that got pregnant in a bathhouse or a mikvah. Uh, the concept would be this, again, it's a little, little bit gross. Uh, man goes to the mikvah, there is some semen in the mikvah, or bathhouse, and uh, because of the warm water, it can preserve the this, this semen. The semen can be alive in a warm medium. So then a woman goes in, and some of that semen goes into her body. The Talmud actually discusses the possibility of a woman getting pregnant in that way. This is called nisabra ba'ambati. That means she got pregnant in a bathhouse. Now, according to the Satmar Rebbe, she would not be guilty of adultery because this was not consensual, but the kid would still be a mamzer. Because mamzer does not depend on whether it's consensual or not. Uh, I'll tell you a little, I'll tell you a, an amazing tosvos about this. Uh, there is a book in the Apocrypha called the Book of Ben Sira. You know the Apocrypha? Apocrypha the Apocrypha uh, are, are books that are not part of our Tanakh. We don't consider them holy. They were written the same time, but the Chachamim decided that certain books are Kadosh, and we include them in Tanakh, and certain books are not Kadosh, and we exclude them from Tanakh. One example is actually most famous coming up, the Book of the Maccabees. Right, the Book of the Maccabees. We have the Book of the Maccabees, Sefer Chashmonoim. Now, that's a kosher book. You can read it, but it's not a kadosh book. It's not part of Tanakh. So that's what apocrypha is. Apocrypha just means those books that were excluded from the Tanakh. So uh, one of the books, besides the Book of the Maccabees, which is the Hanukkah story, uh, is a book called the Book of Ben Sira. Now, the book of Ben Sira, if you read the book of Ben Sira, you can read it, it's very similar to Mishle, right? What's Mishle? Mishle is a sefer of Shlomo HaMelech that gives various proverbs about, it's Musr, it's a book of ethics, a book of morals, right? Uh, Mishle, right? You open up Mishle and uh, you learn about how to live a righteous life. Now, Ben Sira seems to be almost the same thing, proverbs about living a righteous life. So why does Mishle make the Tanakh and Ben Sira is excluded from Tanakh, right? So we treat Mishle as a book that was written with divine Ruach HaKodesh. Ben Sira is a book of wisdom, wisdom, but it's not a book of Ruach HaKodesh. Now, what does the word Ben Sira mean? So, so, so you know, you would say his, his father's name was Sira, but what type of name is Sira? So it says, that Sira actually means a bathtub. And his mother conceived him accidentally in a bath, in a, in a uh, warm bath. And his father is none other than Yermio the Navi, 
that had a little bit of semen in the warm water. And therefore, on one hand, he's Yirmiyahu's son, so he has a high level of wisdom, but because this was not through normal marriage and normal relationship, he does not have nevuah or ruach hakodesh. That's why his book is considered to be a book of wisdom, but it's not a book of prophecy and a book of, of kedusha. Ben Sira, right? Ben Sira, the book of Ben Sira. So it says Yirmiyahu went to a bathhouse, and there was a little bit of sperm that went into the warm water. And then a woman went into the bathhouse after him and she got pregnant from the sperm and she had a boy and he was called Ben Sira, the he's son of the best. He's not a man, no, he's not a man. No, no, because the mother, was not, the mother was not married. In those days, in those days, single women went to the mikvah. Why would they not suspect her of like, having been married no, but even if she had premarital sex, she it wouldn't be a mamzer. Remember, out of wedlock is not a mamzer. Even if she had intercourse with somebody, it wouldn't be a mamzer. And he was Yirmiyahu's son. Yirmiyahu's son through this procedure. How do you know Yirmiyahu? You know, it's recorded as a tradition. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure how they know. This is a medrash that Tosfos brings. It is not in the Gemara, uh, but Tosfos in Chagiga brings this medrash about Ben Sira. The book of Ben Sira we have, but in the book of Ben Sira it does not say any of this. This is not in the book of Ben Sira, yeah. So if he's not a mamzer, then why couldn't he have... Uh, so he's not a mamzer, uh, for sure he's not a mamzer, but uh, the idea was that uh, he was not born through a normal marriage between uh, this woman and Yermio, and therefore he doesn't have the same kedusha. Uh, there's no mamzer problem, but it's not the same kedusha. As uh, no, of course, of course, remember, because he's born out of wedlock. She was a single woman. If she would have been a married woman, right. like the Satmar Rebbe, she would be. A, he would be a mamzer. Not like Ramosha. Ramosha wouldn't be a mamzer anyway. So, but, but as far as you know, she was a single, a single woman. Um, so, this might even explain possibly some of the Christian mysim about virgin births. You know, you know the whole business about uh, uh, how does. Uh, Yashka's mother have a kid with you know so possibly it happened with him too, something something like something like that, and the way right so all sorts of crazy things uh, can uh, can happen. This is called Nisabra Biambati, and that's the basis of the story of Ben Ben Sira. Okay, uh, the other term, the Hebrew term for the apocrypha, are called Svarim Chitzonim. Svarim Chitzonim are the excluded books. Uh, just a little note about the Apocrypha, just so you'll know what it is. Some books of the Apocrypha are totally kosher books, but they're just not holy books. So Ben Sira and the Book of the Maccabees, you're allowed to read them, you're allowed to study them, they're like Musser books, or Maccabees is history books. And it's Mutter to read, but they're not Kaddish, they don't have the Kedusha of Tanakh. But there are other books of the Apocrypha that are heresy, that are Epicorsus and Kefira. Right? So the common denominator is they're excluded from Tanakh, but different reasons. Some are just excluded because they're not Kadosh, but they're fine. Others are excluded because they have ideas that are Keneget, the Torah, and Keneget Chazal. So there's the Book of the Jubilees, Sefer HaYovelos, different things. In fact, uh, well, if you ever... Well, well they, they were mainly preserved by the Goyim. I mean, they, these were books. Remember that the Jewish people had different sects. There were Tzedukim, there were different groups. And they wrote books. 
So our, our Chazal just threw away the books, didn't, didn't regard them. But other groups preserved the books, so we have to kind of know how to deal with them. I mean, you can buy. You can buy the, uh, the Apocrypha in English or Hebrew or whatever it is, and you'll have some of those books in there that are not considered to be proper. So which are the ones that are? So the two that for sure are, are proper are the Book of the Maccabees and Ben Sira. Those two books are proper. Uh, there are some others. I'd have to remember all the titles. Uh, but some of, some of the books are, are improper. Some of the books are... Well, because it has different ideas. In fact, you'll, you'll, if, if you ever read some of these books, you will see that they sound very Christian. A lot of Christian ideas either came from those books or those books were influenced by Christianity. So you'll see it describes Hashgad in certain ways and it describes uh, the way Hashem deals with the world in, in ways that are reminiscent of the Christian Bible. I think things like that, that would be, uh, that would be a, a, a problem. Um, also, it's interesting, uh, they also have, well, it's similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, you know, you know, you know we have all sorts of stuff that was found. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, also the same thing. Dead Sea Scrolls are writings of Jewish movements that uh, rebelled against Chazal and didn't accept the Torah Shabal Peh. So most of the stuff in the Dead Sea Scrolls is also considered to be uh, not uh, according to the teachings of Judaism. Right? So the Apocrypha of the Dead Sea Scrolls are very similar. The, the academic experts who tend, to be, uh, who tend to study the Dead Sea Scrolls also tend to study the Apocrypha. It's all like uh, together in that, in that way. Okay. Um, all righty. Uh, so that's what you need to know. Oh, I'm sorry. So then Rav Moshe says something else though. Let's say a woman is desperate. A woman really, truly wants to have a child and her husband cannot give it to her. So Rav Moshe says, if a woman is really, really desperate, she can use an anonymous sperm donor. But listen to this. But there's one important condition. The sperm donor must be a goy and cannot be a Jew. Huh? I mean, if you had to guess, is it better to have a Jewish sperm donor or a non-Jewish sperm donor? I might have thought Jewish. He says, no, non-Jewish is better. Why is that so? This is a little complicated. Everybody knows that if a non-Jewish man impregnates a Jewish woman, the child is Jewish, right? Everybody knows that. That's called the rule of matrilineal descent. That's a cornerstone of Yichus in Klal Yisrael. But... Some people don't know the reason why. The reason why is because, according to halacha, a non-Jewish man has no paternity over a child born from a Jewish woman, meaning this child has no father. Which means the following. If a guy impregnates a Jewish woman and has a son, and the same guy impregnates another Jewish woman and has a daughter, Although biologically, this son and daughter have the same father, halachically they are not brother and sister because the non-Jewish father is not their father and therefore neither of them has a father, halachically. Which means, as surprising as this is, do you get the hypothetical here? The boy can marry the girl because... 
Now, a geneticist would not advise this. But halachically, it's not into. So Rabbi Feinstein said, if you use a Jewish sperm donor, then there is a problem that the boy and the girl, 20 years from now, are going to be related. But if you use a non-Jewish sperm donor, then even if the boy and the girl marry 20 years later, they're not siblings, halachically, because of the non-Jewish parentage. And therefore, a non-Jewish sperm donor would be preferable because this would avoid the hidden incest problem of a Jewish sperm donor. Now, Rabbi Feinstein then says that since in the United States the vast majority of sperm donors are Jewish, are non-Jewish, so if the woman doesn't know, she is permitted to assume that it's non-Jewish sperm donation. Masha'en Cain in Eretz Yisrael, where a majority of the sperm donors would be Jewish, she should not use that sperm donation because of the possibility of incest later. So again, it's not the Satmar Rebbe. The Satmar Rebbe said sperm donors is adultery and mamzer. Rav Moshe rejects the adultery and the mamzer, but he says there is a problem of hidden incest, and uh, hidden incest will only be a problem with a Jewish sperm donor, not with a non-Jewish sperm donor. So Rabbi Feinstein said, if a woman is going to use a sperm donor, she has to be sure it's non-Jewish, or in the United States, she, or outside of Israel, she can assume, right, this is the rule of majority, she can assume that the sperm is non-Jewish. Now, this absolutely, this, this, you don't realize how bitter this was, uh, because look at what Moshe Feinstein seems to be saying. He seems to be saying it's okay for Jewish women to be impregnated with sperm from non-Jewish men. That sounds horrendous. And many people were saying this is a destruction of the holiness of Am Yisrael. Uh, so Satmir uh, not only protested Rav Moshe, but they burned his books. They burned him in effigy. They made like a picture of him and they set it on fire, etc. And Rav Moshe wrote a number of chubos defending his position. Uh, but what I would say is that practically, in the religious world, this is not done. Practically, uh, a religious woman will not be impregnated with uh, Jewish sperm because of Rav Moshe's problem, and even with non-Jewish sperm because you know, it's, not, uh, it's not anything you want to fool around with. But, but be it as it may, be aware of this great machlokas between the Satmer uh, Rav, uh, Satmer Rebbe, and Rav Moshe, and Rav Moshe Feinstein. How does that yeah. answer why the Jewishness goes according to the mother. Did you say that? Oh, I, I didn't, well, 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 no, I, I didn't say that was the reason, but I said, but that's the implication of it. In other words, it's not just you're Jewish if your mother is Jewish. It's, it's because you don't have a non-Jewish father. It's as if there's no father there. The father is eliminated. There is no paternity that a non-Jew can have over uh, the child of a Jewish mother. There is no paternal relationship. Okay, uh, yeah. So if, let's say there's a non-Jewish man and a Jewish woman married and they have a child, yep. and Hasashalom, the mother, who has custody of the child? Okay, so technically, technically, uh, uh, the child has no father. The child is orphaned. He has no father at all. Practically, a Basedin would say that if the child emotionally identifies with this person as the parent, they would give custody to the parent, but the only thing is 
that they want to, they would want to be sure the child is raised as a Jewish child. So that's going to be another. There are two different issues here. One is who is the parent. The other is will the child be raised in a Jewish environment. I mean, if the child is not going to be raised in the Jewish environment, the basin is not going to give the father custody. On the other hand, if he's a guy, he may not he may not care what a basin does. He'll go to secular court and he'll get custody in secular court. But in terms of halacha. Uh, he will get custody, but not because he's the father, but because he's the emotional support for the child, and that will be conditioned on the child having a Jewish upbringing, which I'm not sure how that's going to be possible if, if uh, the, the person did not convert. Okay, so now let me mention another issue, which maybe is a delicate issue. Uh, maybe it's not so tzniyas, but I'm, I'm going to mention it because I want you to at least understand the Shiloh. What about single women getting impregnated from sperm donors. I don't mean, God forbid, having sexual intercourse, but I mean, that is obviously forbidden. But what about insemination? Now, the scenario here is something that uh, can be very, very painful. Let's imagine you have a from woman, totally from, totally religious. She would keep Shabbos, keeps kosher. She would never have uh, sexual intercourse outside of marriage. Keeps mitzvah, sinias. But she's approaching 40 and the biological clock is ticking. And she doesn't have a shidduch yet. And she desperately wants to be a mother, understandably so. And as I say, she will not have a, have, you know, be with somebody. So the question becomes, is it yitochein that maybe she could get pregnant through a sperm donor? And that way she could raise a child as a single mother until such time as she gets married, but at least even if she never gets married, at least she'll have a child that she brought into the world, right? So what will we say halachically about sperm uh, donation for a single unmarried woman? So as you would probably guess, the post-skim don't like it. They, they haven't really given complete reasons why it's us. What is the Avera, actually? But they say they don't like it. And there are different reasons they don't like it. Uh, one reason, they say, is there is a Marisayan issue. Marisayan means appearances. Here you have single women who are going around pregnant. People will think that perhaps they're promiscuous with men. Right? So, and even though they're not, you know, Marisayan. Right? Marisayan is important. Uh, there's a book I read a few years ago. Uh, it's a good book. Uh, when, I think it's out of print, When Black Becomes a Rainbow. Did you ever read that book? This is an interesting book. This was written by a non-religious woman whose daughter became very Haredi. And the woman writes about the conflicts between how did she learn to get along with her daughter because her daughter became very, very ultra from and uh, in Israel and everything the mother did was wrong. Kind of the father is kind of low-key. He's not involved so much. And the mother and daughter are always fighting, and eventually they come to this great shalom, this great rapprochement, etc. So every time uh, the mother wanted to do something, take them to a restaurant and have kosher food, but the restaurant was trade, the daughter kept on saying, I don't know, Marisayan, Marisayan, I don't know. And the, daughter, and the mother didn't know what Morris Ion was. So she finally says, who is this Morris Ion you're always talking about? Like, he's watching you 24 hours a day. Morris Ion, who is he? What are you so afraid of him? But Morris Ion, or Maritz Ion, however you want to pronounce it, is an important rule in halacha. Meaning, it's not enough that you don't do Averos. You're not supposed to do things that look like you're doing. 
Averis, right? Marisayan. Okay? So one problem with single women getting pregnant is it's a Marisayan that they're being promiscuous, God forbid. That's one problem. A second problem is the opposite direction. It may give cover and excuse to women who are, who are in fact promiscuous, meaning to say, if we could have pregnancies from anonymous sperm banks, then some women who are not sanua may chas v'shalom be nichshal in real averos, and they'll cover themselves. They're not going to be afraid or embarrassed because they can always say anonymous sperm bank. Uh, so that's the second reason, kind of the opposite. Uh, the third reason uh, is that it may create incentives not to bother to get married. Because let's face it, uh, marriage to men is a pain in the neck. You know, the men are always a pain in the neck. Uh, but if a woman wants to have a kid, she has to get married. But if she has a new option that doesn't need marriage, so a woman, okay, forget about marriage. I'll just be a mother. So we don't want to create disincentives to getting married. That's a third reason. And a fourth reason is more of a spiritual reason. Chazal tell us that every neshama every, that comes into the world is three partners. There are three partners in the creation of the neshama. There is the father, there is the mother, there is HaKadosh Boruchu. And that you know, the Alter Rebbe himself writes that the nature and the elevation of the neshama of a child is connected to the kavana of the father and the mother when they are together. In other words, their machshava can draw the neshama down Does from a higher source. Again? Father and the father or just father? Uh, both, for father and mother. The machshava can draw it down, etc. So the fear is that if there is no father, or the father just did it through a sperm donation, so to speak, uh, that kavana was not there, really. Right? There was no kavana to draw down a, a neshama, so perhaps the child is going to be spiritually... Uh, you know, deficient in some way, even though he's not a mom, he's not a mamzer. Of course, he's not a mamzer, but there may be a pagam, and uh, so those are the different reasons that, that that were given why people were against it. Is it Say again. Is it usher? So they didn't use the word usher because it's not, it's not usher, but it's something that uh, is not a proper thing. But there was one posek in Israel who did moderate Rav Sherlow. His name was, he's Dati uh, Liyumi in the Mizrahi world, but he's a Talmud Chacham. And he said he would allow it, but only, gave conditions, only if the woman is at least 40 years old, so she's towards the end of the normal reproductive cycle, and she spent at least 10 years looking for a Shidduch, meaning she really tried to find the Shidduch. Now, obviously, those numbers are made up numbers. You're not going to find in the Shulchan Aruch any particular thing, but he wanted to be sure that this wouldn't be done as an end run not to get married, but it's kind of at the end of your rope when you don't have a choice, uh, you do it that way. But otherwise we say it is wrong to bring a child into the world without an active father. Now sometimes there is no father because the father might die while the woman is pregnant. I mean that happens. But that's Hashem doing it. But for me, for a woman to deliberately try to have a child Without a father, some say that is, uh, up, that is upsetting or violating HaKadosh Baruch Hu's plan for how families would be, would be created. Now, 
There is another option for older women, which may work part of the time, and this is called egg freezing. Let's go back to the original situation. The woman is 40 years old, and uh, she's a from woman. Unfortunately, there are no shiduchim that are working out right now. She wants to have a child, and she's very, very afraid that uh, if she ever, even if she does get married eventually, it'll be too late. So we talked about just now, can she be impregnated by sperm donor? We basically said, not the best thing. Now, what you can do, though, is she could have her eggs taken out of her body and frozen for later use. Because let me explain something. When a woman goes into menopause, that means she's no longer ovulating. But she could still carry a baby, meaning the uterus can still carry a baby. So the way this works is, take out her eggs while she's still ovulating. They can be frozen. And even when she's 45 or 50 or 55, and she gets married, those eggs could be fertilized in an in vitro fertilization procedure and then transferred into her body because even a postmenopausal woman can carry a pregnancy to term if you have an egg that was fertilized. So egg freezing can be something that could be very, very useful for an older single, but again, it's only going to work if she eventually gets a shit of I mean, it's not going to give her a child if she doesn't get a shit of but at least it can work uh, in cases where she hopes to get a shidduch, but she'll be older, postmenopausal, and the like. Now, I don't know how old a woman could be. I don't know if a woman could carry a baby when she's 85 or, or 90. I mean, sorry, Emanuel did, but that's, that, those, were, those were miracles. Uh, but certainly, uh, 50, you know, 50, 55, uh, there's no question that a woman can carry uh, a baby to term, uh, even if it's postmenopausal. Uh, in fact, I believe... Uh, this was a dangerous procedure, but I believe a Jewish woman went to Russia and she gave birth to a baby at 65. Uh, she had to go to Russia because they wouldn't do the surgery in the U.S. <laughs> it was considered to be uh, too dangerous or whatever it is. For some reason in Russia they were, they were willing to, uh, to do it. Okay? So be aware of she eggs. She had a healthy baby? Uh, she had a healthy baby, yeah. yeah Baruch Hashem. Uh, and I think it was through an egg freezing thing. They took out the eggs when she was much younger and then they used them many, many years later. So this is an important uh, biological fact to be aware of, that a woman after menopause can carry a baby to term even though she's not ovulating uh, anymore. Okay, so that would be a partial way of not, not having to use uh, sperm uh, donation and, and, and the like. Now, let's talk about another aspect of this. Let's talk about, uh, so we've been talking about today, Again, didn't you? Freezing eggs is Absolutely so. Yeah, there is no prohibition in freezing eggs for later later use. Uh, now, again, removing eggs from a woman is not a simple thing. Uh, she has to go under general anesthesia, and there's a surgical procedure that's involved. But they do have something called laparoscopy, which is a, a kind of a surgery that's really very minimally invasive, like a little cut and they can take things out. So uh, laparoscopic surgery uh, really cuts down the recovery period very, very drastically. So instead of like having to recover for three weeks, they can cut it down to four days or so. But there's still a recovery period. I mean, four days of recovery is, is four days. So it's not a simple thing, but, but they can do it much better than they, uh, than they used to do it, uh, laparoscopy. 
Okay, so now uh, we've been talking about what I call, not me, but AID, artificial insemination from a donor. Okay, meaning not the husband, not the husband. And by the way, when I say AID, understand that I'm including two things. The original AID is when they injected the sperm directly into the woman's body and fertilization took place in her body. That's the older type of AID. Today, AID tends to be utilized with in vitro fertilization, meaning to say today, uh, most of the time, not all the time, they still use the old type. Instead of injecting the sperm in her body, uh, they actually extract an egg and they fertilize it in the test tube. That's called IVF, in vitro fertilization, and then they put it in her body. So when I say AID, I'm including both things. I'm including the old-fashioned AID, where it's injected directly in her body, and that's where fertilization takes place. And the uh, new type of, newer type, it's not so new anymore, but the newer type of AID, where donor sperm fertilizes the egg in vitro, which is then transferred to her body. Okay, but the common denominator of both of those scenarios is that it is donor sperm. But now, let's talk about AIH. AIH is artificial insemination with husband's sperm. Yeah. You want to say? Um, yeah, I was going to ask about, I guess you're going to talk about it in a second, but what about why, this is like kind of fun. Why would someone choose to do IVF? Okay. Yeah. No. 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 You're 100 correct. Uh, yeah. Why? Why go through IVF? Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there are there are going to be reasons. Uh, I'll give you one. I'll give you one example from the male perspective. Uh, number one, when sperm is injected in the woman's body, the sperm has to travel and find the egg, and it could be a hit or miss thing. With IVF, they target it. You know, they're right. The sperm and the egg is right there. So uh, sometimes it is uh, easier, much, much easier, to get a pregnancy through an IVF than through an I AID. Uh, so so there, there, are, there are medical reasons. Yeah, certainly, if someone is going to a fertility doctor, you talk about all of these options, meaning it is absolutely easier to do an AID than an IVF. A lot of abbreviations here, that's how, how people talk, because I, I, IVF requires surgery, AID does not require surgery. But sometimes IVF may have a higher success rate. So that's why they, they, they would do it and, and the like. Okay, um, let me also point out that with an IVF, they take out more than one egg, meaning to say uh, in an AID, there's only one egg that can be fertilized. In uh, an IVF, they can take 20 eggs and therefore there's a much higher chance of a pregnancy. Uh, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about it for now. I mean, yeah, but yeah, but basically, yeah, basically they are allowed. Well, AID are the shilas we just talked about. Can you have donor semen? But general IVF with husband sperm, well, that's, that's what I'm up to right now. Okay, so now we're talking about, we're going to switch gears. And instead of talking about donor sperm, we're going to talk about husband sperm. Now, you may ask, if it's going to be husband sperm that's fertilizing wife's egg, then why do anything? That's... That's a regular marriage, just regular relationship. Well, the answer is that sometimes you still need uh, some artificial procedure because an example would be, let's say the husband has what is called a low sperm count, meaning in a given ejaculate, there are not a lot of sperm. 
So with an AID, I'm sorry, AIH, we can get a number of sperm samples and then we can combine them and then instead of a low count, you have a high count, right? So there are reasons. Well, so, so one reason why AIH would be helpful is for men that have a low sperm count. That's one reason. But I'll give you another reason why AIH might be helpful. And this is connected to the laws of NIDA. And let's go over this a little bit. This is actually a very, very fascinating issue. And that is we know that under the laws of Taras HaMishpacha, uh, a woman has to be separated for, from her husband for at least 12 days a month. At least 12 days. The first five days, starting from the beginning of a period. And then, if she's no longer bleeding after checking herself, there are seven days without bleeding. These are called the seven clean days. And then she can go to the mikvah and they can resume. Now, if she's still bleeding after five days, she cannot start the seven clean days. In other words, she cannot start the seven clean days till all bleeding has stopped. It's a minimum of five. It could be a maximum. Some, well, the maximum is, there is no maximum. It could go on. And that is a very, very serious problem. So it turns out, therefore, that a woman cannot be with her husband till the 13th day from the start of menstruation. In other words, 12 days and then that night, right? Now, the problem is that some women ovulate on the 11th, 10th or 11th day from their period. Now, you know that a woman generally is fertile for only around 72 hours a month. In other words, 24 hours before and uh, maybe 48 hours after or vice versa. There's a 72-hour window. So the problem is, for some women, by the time they go to the mikvah, they can't get pregnant anymore because they ovulated on day 11, and by day 13, it's beyond the window. Now, most women, it's not. Most women, it works out perfectly. Most women ovulate kind of on day 12, and mikvah works perfectly. The night mikvah night is mamash, in the fertile period, Hashem made it that way, that it works out that ovulation is tied into going to the mikvah. But some women, it uh, doesn't work that way. So what do you do? What do you do when a woman ovulates two or three days before she goes to the mikvah? And it's especially going to be difficult for women who have very heavy periods because there, they may not go to the mikvah till the 14th or the 15th day from the start of menstruation. So even if they ovulate on day 12, which is the normal mikvah date, you know, it's still going to be beyond it. So what's interesting is, some poskim have said that even though intercourse is strictly prohibited when a woman is anita, obviously, but impregnation with the husband's sperm, not through intercourse, would be mutter even before she goes to the mikvah. So the point I'm making is, AIH is helpful both for male infertility problems, such as low sperm count, and for certain types of female infertility problems, namely ovulation more than a day before she goes to the mikvah. Uh, because the, and this is a big chiddish. In other words, impregnation with husband sperm is not considered prohibited under the laws of nida. 
and that would be a solution. There may be other solutions as well, but for now, let's just mention that one. Okay, so the question is, if the fertility doctor advises the couple that the husband should give sperm and we will impregnate you with the sperm either through AID, I'm sorry, AIH, or IVF, you know, either way, uh, is it mutter for the husband to give his sperm that way? So here we reach a very, very difficult problem. Again, forgive me for uh, being so explicit, but it is, it is Torah and halacha. So. I'm asking, can a husband give sperm to give, to give to his wife? And here we get into the whole issue of uh, masturbation. And that is the following. How, how does a husband give sperm? I mean, he's not having relations with his wife. How does he give sperm? So normally, uh, masturbation is considered to be, uh, male masturbation is considered to be a bit, very big sin. This is the sin that is called wasting seed. Hotsaas zera levatala, the omission of seed sperm levatala uh, for naught. Uh, masturbation is forbidden in that way. If you remember, according to Chazal, this was the sin of Er and Onan. Who is Er and Onan? We're going to read about them in two weeks. If you remember, Yehuda had a daughter-in-law whose name was Tamar, and Tamar married Yehuda's oldest son, who was called Er. And it says, Er did evil in the eyes of God. Doesn't say what he did. And God killed him. And then Onan, the next brother, married. And says, Onan also did evil in the eyes of God. And Onan died. And if you remember the rest of the story, a fascinating story, Yehuda had a third son. He didn't want Tamar to marry his third son because he thought anyone who marries Tamar drops dead. So Tamar was left like a widow and uh, she dressed up as a prostitute. She enticed Yehuda. She got pregnant from Yehuda. Remember, you know the whole story. And Yehuda admitted that he was the one. And from that union came eventually Boaz and David HaMelech and Mashiach, right, from the union of Yehuda and Tamar. But Chazal point out that the Torah does not say what was the sin of Er and Onan. So the explanation is that Tamar was very beautiful and they didn't want to mar Tamar's beauty by her getting pregnant. So what they would do is they would have relations with her, but when it came time to ejaculate the sperm, they withdrew and they spilled their seed on the ground. And uh, this was called evil in the eyes of Hashem. And Hashem killed them. And that is the halachic source, actually, for the laws against male masturbation, the wasting of seed, and, 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 and the like. Uh, right? So the question becomes, if the husband is giving zera through that particular procedure in a doctor's office or whatever it is, is there not a prohibition of masturbation, of being motzi, Zara Levatala. In fact, the Zohar writes uh, that this is the most Chomer Avera in the Torah and there's no Tshuva, but the Alter Rebbe writes that the Zohar should not be taken totally literally. The Alter Rebbe writes that, in fact, every, it's important to know this, 
uh, men need to know it, that in fact every Avera of the Torah does have tshuva. That there's no such thing as no tshuva, but it's, uh, the Zohar is just stressing how severe uh, the Avera is, but one should never feel that there's no tshuva. That, that's an important yisod. Uh, even Avodah Zorah, even if I reject Hashem, even if I worship idols, I can always do, do tshuva for it. Okay. But be it as it may, therefore, uh, how does a husband give sperm if there's this issue of masturbation? So as a result, there are two different approaches. Approach number one is that the husband should uh, give the sperm only in the context of, of intercourse, which is then retrieved. This is a very awkward, it doesn't work very well. That means to say, husband has relations with his wife, and then they rush to the doctor's office and the husband takes the sperm out of her body and aggregates it with other samples. Uh, you can imagine this is very, very cumbersome and uh, it's probably not going to work very well. And, uh, and to have intercourse in the doctor's office is considered to be a total no-no. So I, I wouldn't call this a practical. Other opinions say that this is not called wasting sperm because since the purpose of getting this sperm is not to avoid pregnancy but to create pregnancy, this is not ervionon. Ervionon, we're wasting seed not to have a child. This is to have a child and therefore it would be mutter. So we'll just assume without getting into too many of the gritty details that the husband is permitted to donate sperm in that way. But even then, you have to be careful because a lot of times fertility clinics want testing over and over and over and over and over again, just giving multiple samples just to be tested. And that is actually not proper. In other words, the basic idea is you give it to be used for fertility, not for testing and like. Okay. Uh, now, so be it as it may, assuming for a moment that the husband could give this sperm, so this is how uh, AIH works, either directly into the woman's body uh, or if she's, uh, or uh, through an in vitro fertilization procedure. Uh, AIH is done uh, all the time. Uh, I mean, if, if, you know, if any couple has fertility problems, this is what they're going to do, either in vitro or directly into the woman's body. So halakhically, it's, it's a well-accepted point. Uh, the only thing you have to be sure of is be sure there's hashkacha so that the sperm doesn't get switched with a donor sperm, as I mentioned, as I mentioned before. So halakhically it's okay? Halakhically it is okay. Uh, some rabbis say it's only mutter if they've been married for 10 years without children. Others say as soon as there is a diagnosis of infertility, they can do it. You don't need to wait 10 years when you have a, a diagnosis. Okay. You also have to make sure that there is no testing, it's going straight. Well, yeah, you, you try to minimize the testing. It may have to be one test, but, but you try to uh, have all the sperm used, not just destroyed or, or the like. <coughs> okay. <coughs> now, let's talk about uh, one common thing of AIH, which is in vitro fertilization. This would be a situation where the husband is giving sperm, the husband's own sperm, it's the wife's egg, but instead of the sperm going into her body, uh, it's gonna be an in vitro fertilization. Are there any unique problems with in vitro fertilization? 
So here's the very interesting thing. The way in vitro fertilization works, now how, how old is in vitro fertilization? It's, it's much uh, newer than stam artificial insemination. Artificial insemination is more than 100 years old. I mean, they did that 100 years ago already. But in vitro fertilization, where the pregnancy takes place in the, in the dish, that only dates to 1980. The very first in vitro baby, her name was Louise Brown. Louise Brown was already a, Z- a bubby. Uh, uh, she already has grandchildren. Uh, and initially, it was thought that in vitro children had a higher incidence of mental retardation and some other problems. But Baruch Hashem, uh, that's not a problem now. By in vitro kids are just as good as everybody else. But here is the problem with in vitro. In vitro fertilization, number one, involves surgery. The woman must be put under general anesthesia and the eggs are taken out of her body, number one. Number two, they're not going to just take out one egg because one egg, uh, you know, they're not, they're not going to do surgery to take out one egg because the chances of the one egg getting fertilized are not very high. So what they do is before the surgery, they give the woman very powerful hormonal drugs to induce what is called hyperovulation or superovulation to ripen a lot of eggs. And what they will do is they will remove from her body not one egg or two eggs. They will remove from her body 20 eggs. And therefore, in the Petri dish, right, the the laboratory dish, where they're putting the man's sperm, they're exposing the man's sperm to 20 eggs. Okay. So here is the problem. If out of those 20 eggs, only one gets fertilized, so that's simple. We transfer the fertilized egg. And what do you do with the rest of the eggs? Well, you could throw them away if you want. Or you can freeze them for later use, like egg freezing. There is no issue to throw away the eggs. You don't have to use, unlike sperm, where you can't waste sperm, there actually is no halacha, don't waste eggs. How do we know, though? Because, How do you know? Because, like, when, I don't know, it, it would, they wouldn't write it about in the Gemara because IVF wasn't a thing then, so why would they even consider the issue of throwing out eggs? Because it wasn't something that was possible. No, no, so, so the, well, well, yeah, but again, we, we go back with this idea that unless you have a reason to say something's usher, the default rule is it's mutter, meaning there's no, you have to find a halacha that you're violating. If you don't have a halacha that you're violating, it's going to be mutter mimela. So here's the problem. If one egg gets fertilized, you know, you put one egg in her body. If two eggs get fertilized, that's fine. What if, though, if you have 20 eggs exposed to sperm, it is possible that all 20 are fertilized, or 10, or eight, or nine. So one of the problems in in vitro fertilization, these are called embryos, right? Once, when sperm fertilizes an egg, it's no longer just called an egg, it's now called an embryo. What do you do so what do you do with spare eggs is not a halakhic problem. Spare eggs can be discarded or frozen. That's fine. 
But a spare embryo is a real problem. Because once you have an embryo, you have the beginning of a human being. At that point, if you destroy an embryo, you're doing an abortion. You see, it's an abortion outside of the woman's body. So that's going to be the question. That's, that's what we're going to, going to discuss. So the most difficult issue halachically in in vitro fertilization is what do you do with what are called spare or surplus fertilized embryos. Now, I want to point out that even before you get to halacha, you know, when you sign up for an, an IVF program, you have to sign a contract. Now, it, it makes a difference if it's a Jewish hospital, not Jewish hospital, from or not from. There has to be a contract. There's a contract. And the contract will be, one of the things in the contract is, what should we do with fertilized embryos? So, huh? Okay, so now I'm going to give you a list. I'm going to give you a list, and next week we'll discuss, you can think about it for a whole week, uh, which are halachically kosher and which are not halachically kosher, but I'll give you a list of everything. Option one, implant everything. <laughs> implant, yeah, yeah, implant everything. Now, now, now that would depend on the number, right? but, but you know, but so, whatever is fertilized, I want to implant it. That's option one. Option two, implant up to a certain number. So that could be anything. Implant one or two or three. And the rest freeze for later implantation because embryos can be frozen as well, not just eggs. Embryos, fertilized embryos can be frozen for later use. Right? So option one is total implantation. Option two is partial implantation with embryo freezing, which is also looking to future implantation. Future. And this could be over you know, 20 years. You can, you can say, oh, one year this, one year that, etc. Option three, donate the embryo to other infertile couples so they could have a child. I'm just giving you options. I'm not discussing the halachas yet. Option four. Donate the embryo for scientific experimentation, which essentially means it'll be destroyed. And option five is really the same thing. Uh, just destroy it. Either passively let it uh, disintegrate or actively destroy it. Okay? In other words, when you sign an IVF contract, you will be you and your husband will be asked to initial or check one of these choices. Again, this is just a matter of the hospital has to have a policy. Implantation, freezing for later use, donation to infertile couples, donation to scientific experimentation, or destruction. Actually destroy it. Flush it down the toilet or whatever. So the question we're going to discuss next week, and you can think about this uh, during the week, some of you think about, is if you're a religious couple and you want to follow halacha and you're in an in vitro fertilization protocol, what are the options that you're allowed to agree to 
for these extra embryos? And what are you not allowed to agree to? And what would the reasons be? Okay, so we'll talk about that museum next week. Yeah. Is implantation guaranteed? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And then miscarry, or 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 not? Well, well, anything. I mean, I mean, uh, basically, uh, IVF. Uh, number one, the fertilization is not guaranteed. But assuming you have fertilized embryos, if the embryos are transplanted to the woman's body, they may take, they may attach to the uterine wall, or they may not, or they may be spontaneous miscarriages. Not all. It's not all or nothing. Uh, some will mis- miscarry and some will not. You don't know. You just don't know. But the only thing is, it's obvious, is it not? that the more embryos you implant, the higher the risk of miscarriages, right? To put 10 embryos in a woman, you know, it's very likely that all 10 might die, right? So you gotta pick a safe number. Now, you know, a few years ago, we had Octomom, do you remember, do you remember yeah. Octomom? Octomom was a woman who actually did, through in vitro fertilization, she had eight, she had eight embryos implanted, eight, and all eight were born healthy. Now, the doctor that did this got in a lot of trouble because the doctor's not supposed to do this because it's, it's so high risk and it's so unlikely. But Baruch Hashem, it happened to be that uh, all eight are fine. I mean, are things of triplets and, and twins in general with IVF? Right? Well, e- uh, well, well, even twins are high risk. Twins are higher risk, yeah. Right, but they're but, higher rates with IVF. Yes, that's correct. That, that is correct. But this was actually this was this was eight. Eight is kind of a well in Mitzrayim we had you know many many children born at one time, but that was a miracle. But eight is kind of a record, really. Uh, eight. Um, now it used to be. It's not so much anymore. It used to be in the olden days, like the fifties or sixties, if you had quintuplets, uh, you you know everybody gave you money, so you became rich. So in a way, it was a way of almost getting rich because it was such an unusual thing. But I think Optimum didn't, didn't uh, do so well economically. I think she was hoping to... She was a single mother, number one. She didn't have oh, a husband. Really? She was a single mother. She was on welfare. And now she has eight kids so all at once. And I don't, I don't think the money came through, which is kind of, you know, again, a difficult, massive uh, to be in. Uh, so things get harder. It used to be quintuplets you got rich, but now, uh, now even octuplets uh, don't, don't work. People are less impressed today. I don't know. Okay, so uh, next week we'll go over the different options and what the halachic uh, issues are with them. Okay, you'll have a good week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay.